stories in the big city and about one million podcasts to choose to listen to. Yet you've come to the right place. Lean back and get comfortable. Today, I get to tell you about a story called Brother Mine and introduce you to the company that brought it to life, Hand Forge Fiction. Meet the creative artists behind Brother Mine. I'm Valerie Johnson, and this is Interludes. Interludes, a pure lighthouse production. We would like to thank our local title sponsor, A1 Pestmasters, for supporting Interludes. This episode brought to you by Montevilla Coffee and Tea. And now, all the way live from the south side of Chicago, give it up for your host, Valerie Johnson. Hi, everyone. This is Valerie Johnson, and welcome to Interludes. This is when I have cast of wonderful projects on, I get excited because that is the inner writer-director in me yelling with pom-poms. A new theater <laughs> company, Hange Forge Fiction, has kicked off their first season with a nine-part graphic audio drama called Brother Mine, and it's written by Casey Keene and Eric Dente. And I'm excited. We have the writer, the writers and director, Eric Dente and Casey Keene on, along with our, our production person, Adam Sims, and then our actors. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Welcome, everyone, from Brother Mine of Handforged Fiction. How are you guys doing today? So good. Awesome. Great. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, great to be here. <laughs> Super. Thanks excited. for having us, Valerie. Yeah, this is exciting. Yep. Thanks, Valerie. And I, and I uh, you hear that voice. That is, uh, I call her Beth Brewster, but professionally she's known as Elizabeth Brewster. She's the one that brought um, Brother Mind to my attention. And I'm thank you so much for doing that. That right now, I just, I want to talk about what Brother Mine is about, and I'm literally going to read what I was was told. Um, Malcolm O'Brien, that's played by um, Drew Drake. That's how he's known. Uh, he's a young man who was adopted into a life of privilege, uh, returning to the neighborhood of his birth and seeking credibility from a father he's never known and determining his own destiny and applying to his privilege to a greater cause. He finds himself at odds with everyone he's ever called a family, both old and new. And I'm literally gonna start with the writer director. It, it always starts with the writer. When you come up with the idea, you come up with the imagination of this. Originally, Brother Mine was written by you, Eric, and Casey King for the stage. And the Correct. play primarily deals with themes revolving around family, race, privilege, civil rivalry, and community building and finding oneself. Uh, what initially sparked your interest to write a play like Brother Mine? I'm going to go with Eric first. Um, that's a good question. I think that I like dealing in things that are humanist. And I really feel like when we put things into a family setting, we give ourselves a lot of opportunity for like real honest conflict resolution. And you see like a, 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 a an inherent empathy that just can't be taken away. 
when you deal with family. So that for me is like where I like to, um, to focus my particular work. Uh, working with Casey, uh, she has her own and we were able to have this really wonderful collaboration and let her speak for that for sure. And Casey, how was it working with Eric when you guys developed this this project so many years ago? Um, well, it was wonderful, first of all, and it <laughs> continues to be wonderful. Um, but I did come to this story specifically with the O'Briens after Eric had already conceived it. And he had been working on it for a while before I got my hands on it. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, so it is really, truly a collaborative, you know, piece of writing because um, a lot of the things that are there were inherent um, when Eric conceived it, and um, I dare not touch. <laughs> but a lot of the um, structuring of events and really focusing on an issue of credibility, which was important for me, thematic-wise, um, and building that into the script was important for me. So those are the two things, of course, building character too, but, um, and I think that comes naturally once you create or set or work towards creating a strong sense of place and really working on idiosyncratic voices for the characters. And once you do that, I think um, the credibility starts to build for the characters and, um, creating their backstory and um, how that propels them into the future was really what Eric and I um, have been focused on through the development. So I liked writing dialogue and having fun and creating characters and Casey taught me how to be a playwright. I mean, let's just be straight about it. She, she really knew more about that and taught me how to actually focus a lot of really wild, crazy energy that I had going off in every direction. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> that's 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 fascinating to me. In our current and somewhat volatile climate dealing with injustice and race relations, why is a story like Brother Mine important to tell right now in 2021? And anyone can answer that question. Man, let me jump in then. Um, I think for me, I think the importance of the story is really like for Malcolm this idea of finding identity or finding who you are, right? And I think there's a deep conversation about community and like being raised in different areas and different communities and like really trying to find your true home and your true authenticity. And I think that's really like parallel to one, I mean, we can you know definitely say of, of Black folks or African-Americans here in America, of like finding this identity, but also like clinging to like what is my truth right in the midst of finding that which i think a lot of people not just black folks but i think universally are in this space of like trying to find like what is my authentic self right and how do i show up in the midst of learned behaviors or things i picked up from family um, can, I, can, can i jump in on this um of course. Mm -hmm. uh i think for me the appeal was here is someone who has had uh, a certain perspective on life and now that's getting completely disrupted in in within her family which completely disrupts how she perceives the world around her so she's having to really uh, come to grips with that and and wrestle with that and decide through the process who what she's going to 
kind of what she's going to embrace and what she's willing to change. And I think for a lot of us right now, that's happened to us personally. Our perception, our perspective of life has been so disrupted, so interrupted. And now it's about, okay, what am I going to do with that information? And who am I, who am I going to be because of what I'm learning? And what am I willing, how uncomfortable am I willing to be in order to embrace change? And I mean, it's a bit cliched, but one changed perspective, one changed life influences another, influences another. So that's, that's what really appealed to me was, is watching this journey while in real life witnessing that journey too. So, And that's the thing. I think you're right, Beth. Both you and Drew are right on the money that the bravery of facing the unknown and knowing that you have to, that you must take on great challenges. Um, we speak a lot about something that comes up in the play a lot, we are not afraid. It means something different to each one of us, but that, that ideal that we wish to strive for, that we will take on these challenges um, imperfectly from an imperfect place and try to, to find a, a better sense of equity amongst all of us right and that's the humanist i think and that's the reason that, that certainly i wanted to approach this story these characters these people and the theme that's going on in this play um which is just hugely impactful to me personally and i hopefully it is for us as you know a team and as we send it out into the world wow anyone else <laughs> uh, I'd piggyback on what Beth is, uh, and 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 Drew have said. Like, there's um, uh, the script that Eric and Casey have written. Um, there's really, uh, they really lay bare sort of like the. Um, there are just mechanisms like whether it, whether it's a family or a community. Uh, like, it really lays bare that like the way that those machines are are working are leaving people behind right now. Um, and it's this really like pretty honest and sometimes painful exploration of like, how do you take that machine apart when you're invested in the way that it's working in a way that makes it more inclusive? Uh, yeah, that's kind of saying what I, I think I agree with everything that everyone said already. I think there's a word that I'd like to include in the conversation. Um, which is the like obligation, I think, right? So like you have that in um, what Malcolm thinks his obligation is to his old neighborhood. Um, and then that goes back to his parents and what's their obligation to him and through him, his old neighborhood. Um, what Malcolm thinks Raymond's obligation is or should be or isn't to him, uh, their parents' obligation to Anthony, yada, yada. I think there's an idea of like, what is obligation and what does it look like and what does it mean? Does it go both ways? Does it go one way? Can we define and determine that? Which, you know, like that's part of the conversation about, you know, all, all these conversations about injustice and inequality and systemic this and that. What is our obligation to participate in like justice or healing or fixing things? Which way does that go and how does the conversation happen? Yeah. And I, um, and I totally agree. I, and I think the structure of it and it being a family and it, you know, when, when you can personalize an issue is really important and it makes you feel about it, think about it and engage and interact with it in a completely different way. 
and forces you to change. And I think the family structure and us and like, you know, my character having to deal with these things speaks to some of the issues also of like broadening, taking it in a more broad sense of like the echo chamber of, of social media and how when people stay in their lane and they're not these, you know, all of these huge issues we're dealing with, they're never personalized. Well, then you're just kind of staying stagnant and you're never challenged. And one of the beauty of the of the framework of that Casey and Eric have done of making it a family and that it, it shows how you engage with, you change and you interact with so many different things when you can make it, when it becomes a personal issue, which is yeah. you know, how you solve that in a broader social media context and whatnot, I don't necessarily know. I mean, the conversations that we're having are, are, are fantastic. And I think that it's, you know, it's a, a wonderful inroad to that. And it's done very well in, by the playwriting. But the, the imperative is, and it's really important, the imperative is, is that we are in this story, all of these characters are committed to each other. Whether they struggle with each other, we put them in circumstances that are not easy. And then we heap on them things that are not even more easy than that, right? We give them very difficult obstacles to face, but they're inherently bound to each other and can't be separated. And I think that's one of the important things. If we were to speak to something thematically that is greater than ourselves, that certainly is it, right? The human bond that we, it, the travesty is breaking that, right? To allow that to be broken by things that fester and to not take those things on, you know? And when you do it in a family, it's tragic. Right, going to the deathbed of somebody that you you cared about but you never spoke to for twenty years. How tragic is that? And to allow things that are uh, dangerous in a dynamic and friendships and, and and relationships and mothers and sons and all of that is a very sad thing. And I, I just feel like it's imperative for us to take those on. That's the obligation. From my perspective, in response to what Adam was saying. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm a, I'm a, I, this is a techie question because I'm going to, everyone answer. So I'm so grateful to hear that. Um, I'm assuming, Eric, that table reads were done virtually because of what we're going through via uh, the pandemic. Is that what happened, Casey? Eric, you guys did table reads or you rehearsed it virtually? Is that how that worked? <laughs> I, I mean, we have a really unique process. <laughs> discovering discovering remote workflow in COVID-19 time, you know, was something that was experimental. One of the things we were uh, intent on is that we were all going to be able to get into the room together, that you were going to be able to technically hear everybody, right? The quality of that, that all of the equipment, we were all going to tune into whatever each person had and make it really work. Um, as far as being able to spend time together, we were really fortunate that uh, some of the actors who were involved in this had been with the project in live rehearsals and readings with audiences, you know, small groups of like friends and family, so that we have been able to experiment with this process. For Casey and I, gave us opportunities to rewrite consistently and tune things in and be prepared for this moment in time. Um, our rehearsals are really unique and our recording sessions are really unique <laughs> uh, because of all the different equipment we have to use uh, to be able to get people who are in Sacramento and Alabama and New York and San, uh, South Carolina, where everybody is, we've all sort of been spread out. Now we have to like find ways to maneuver us back together. Yeah. 
and to that and, end, uh, our, our our audio engineer Will Pickens has been doing just a dynamite oh, job. Man. Super Will's genius. Over, yeah, he's incredible. <laughs> he's incredible. We I think our first recording session. It just tickles me to think about it because. Uh, it was smack dab in the middle of COVID, and we all had to be very creative about, uh, because you want to get the best sound possible, right? And in, uh, like, I'm in New York City, and what that means can be really quite uh, challenging to orchestrate. Uh, you know, my, it was my whole family in 650 square feet uh, trying to, and uh, at the time, I uh, was on a very busy, busy intersection so ambulances are going by and uh, fire trucks are going by and sirens of all flavors are going by all the time and so i ended up having to ask a friend if i could record in her apartment while she was away and she graciously said yes and her daughter has a bunk bed and i just remember i made a fort out of the bunk bed and yeah. the guys were so the guys were so kind to me <laughs> and i'm i'm like in this fort and i'd have to say we got to hold for sound because even in that situation uh the train it was near a train trestle so we would have to hold for sound as uh the train would go uh zooming by so it's just been a really kind of creative solution uh, problem-solving kind of experience in in the most uh, interesting of ways. I will say that. Yeah, and I'm we, not gonna lie. That bunk bed situation was fire, right there. I love that. That was bunk the, bed. the blanket for rehearsal <laughs> oh was a fantastic. That was the best studio I've ever seen in my life. Like I want to record that studio. I miss it. Can we bring it back? Like that's like comfy. Man, it created so much love just amongst all of us. I mean, just the feeling when you see everybody's like things that they're bringing from their home and everybody's like in their natural element. And it's just, it brings it so much like <laughs> compassion <laughs> for everybody's situations and just love, man. It was just, it was great. It made, it, it, I love your fort and your couch cushions and your bed, bunk bed and everything, man. It made me happy. <laughs> oh my gosh. As a former animator and a lover of music in general, because that, that's just me, I paid close attention to the visual detail in the retelling of Brother Mine with animated specialized texts. Like I know about After Effects and, and, and Maya and all the rest of that type of stuff. I noticed Malcolm's text was in yellow. Um, Anthony's was green. Every character had a certain look and feel to, their, to that thing. So what decisions uh, did you make with um, graphic engineer Adam Sims and everyone else that had something to do with that? This is Eric. This question is to Eric, Adam, and to Casey. What kind of decisions that you all make to create, recreate, to create that uh, feel as if you're there. You're you're sitting in the fireplace by in the in the O'Brien home. You're in the club with uh, Raymond and Malcolm. How did you all come up with the decisions of what you would visually see and hear? Whoever, yeah, that that's Matt who did the the music. I was mm -hmm. just it, it sucked me in. I was like, woo. So you guys can answer that. I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead, uh, Adam. Oh yeah, I can start. Um, <laughs> So I'd like to say um, just right off the bat, because Eric can be very modest, um, he took on a lot of the work, particularly in the recent episodes, uh, as far as animating a lot of the text. Oh. Um, and I, I think a lot of it has come out really well. 
and, and it's his first time using After Effects too, so he's learning a lot of new stuff. Um, so yeah, cheers to. <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as the decisions that we made, I remember Eric and I had a lot of conversations in the very beginning about um, how we want to approach text, how we want to approach coloring, and kind of how to make things feel like the character. Um, we had a few different conversations about uh, like typeface choices, um, color choices, what makes sense for the character, what makes sense for the scene. Um, speaking of the scene, you know, Eric also took on a lot of that. He talks a lot to the illustrators that we work with. Uh, right now we're working with Marissa. Can you remind me, Eric, the name of... Um... Donapel. Marissa no, Donapel. The first, uh, our first episode. Oh, Holly. Holly was, uh, did the first episode. Holly Salerno. Holly Salerno. The, yeah, the, the illustrator for the first episode. And Marissa Donapel has been the illustrator for two, three, four, five, and all the way through the end. Yeah, so there's been a lot of like back and forth conversations, some of which I have been fortunate enough to sit in on. Like for the next episode, there's a lot of cool things that they're talking about doing that almost kind of scared me because I'm like, <laughs> that seems really ambitious. <laughs> Um, but they're really confident and that confidence kind of rubs off, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I would like to take the opportunity to kind of, I, how do I say, uh, commend Eric on taking on a lot of that and learning a lot of new things because I know he won't do it for himself. That's the time we came in, you know, and, and I got taught new skills by people who I was just meeting, you know, Adam reached out to me. We'd never met before. We met virtually for the first time and we started to build a, a rapport, but I really had to learn new things. And that was like, hey, I don't know anything about After Effects. I didn't even know what it was as, as a program. So learning After Effects and going through the whole Adobe suite and starting to um, take on that was a challenge. And like Adam says, we're ambitious for sure. We try new challenging things with each episode. Um, we've learned better ways of recording, better ways of getting the highest quality HD sound. We are mixing video and animation. We are doing all sorts of interesting things. And the challenge is always there to us to just keep stepping up that game with each one. And as we do that, we watch all of the actors do the same thing, right? The challenge gets laid down for all of us. And I think that's part of the great collaboration that's happening. Um, it, it's really, it's been so exciting because of that. Wow. Well, I'm going to now get with the actors because I, I always want to talk to the director. I always want to find out how things are happening technically, but I really want to talk about these characters. Um, I think I'm going to deal with uh, our main character, or one of our main characters, Drew Drake, who plays Malcolm, and Rob Hilly, who plays his brother, adopted brother, Anthony. Um, research. Rob, you, I felt your frustration and, and having this adopted brother around and um, according to the according to the script he's just come out of rehab hopefully that's not revealing too much but uh, did you do any research for Anthony and and what did you bring to the character um, experiences or, or challenges to really bring his frustration and, and things to life as a a brother, a natural brother of the O'Briens, and with this adopted uh, uh, brother, Malcolm. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I, oh man, I don't know. 
what kind of uh, research I did specifically, um, I came from a big, occasionally explosive family. Um, and it's funny because I'm I listen, just something I was thinking about just listening to everybody sort of talk about the dynamics in the family is like one of the one of the I guess kind of tragedies about about the play and the script is like there are like these little moments where like you see the relationship the way that it would be if it worked all the time yeah. um yeah. and I definitely think that there are um there are a lot of moments between uh Drew's character and I where we are just like brothers in the room and we're just brothers in the room and I, I don't I don't think we did any specific research on that that just that, that they just sort of came very naturally when we were working together um uh in in terms of research uh I think something that uh I I felt a lot of responsibility to portray honestly is um Anthony's uh recovery with, mm -hmm. uh, with, with addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think that's a easy thing to, uh, it's an easy thing to, uh, fall victim to the service of a drama. Um, and, uh, I think Eric and Casey have done a really good job to, uh, portray this as a this is a guy that has some really, really big obstacles that has a toolkit that he's not necessarily, that he doesn't trust yet to like fix the things that he has to fix. Um, and there's, uh, there's a lot of stuff that is talked about in his relationship with his parents who, uh, uh, not to, not to judge the characters, but are not super receptive to, uh, uh, the, the steps of the process that they uh that they need to do as uh as core members of a of a support group of somebody um and that is a really big awkward mechanism that everybody is sort of like learning how to how to navigate through at the same time um but yeah i think um i i don't know if i necessarily did specific things to to explore that past like uh familiarity with like 12-step programs uh and a little bit of um you know what 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 life in a in in a in a rehab facility would would be like uh for for somebody that was that was gone the the financial impact that that has on your family when they're expected yeah. to foot that bill like all of those yeah. things are uh He's like Jacob Marley. He like he comes in and he's just got like these loud clanging things just wrapped around him that like he just brings into every room that that he that he that he walks into and it's him just trying to like uh figure out what he's expected to keep carrying and what he can put down. Yeah, and Drew has the unique um responsibility of I, I, I noticed in, in playing Malcolm you are you're bonded with your adopted parents but you're getting to know your biological your biological father Raymond and just how was it um, interacting with um, Rob Robinson is the one who plays Raymond 
and comparison with your your adopted parents, the O'Briens, like how how was that in and what 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 did you tap into to you know bring Malcolm to the surface? Uh, well, I would tell you I tapped into a lot of things. Um, <laughs> I would say one, I definitely feel like this is actually. Um, Knowing uh, Eric from like working at Sleep No More beforehand and like that relationship, like there was a lot of things of like that I really, uh, really appreciated in our relationship um, just in working together. And like Eric really kind of like put me on game about sales and like pitching and things like that, which made me have a deep understanding a lot from Malcolm in the ways of thinking about product. Right. Thinking about like, I want people to see this being received in a certain way, which can lead into ways that, you know, maybe, you know, the family thinks around about money and things like that. Right. And so that was really cool. That was like like pieces that like it was a piece that I just kind of hung on to. And then also just knowing myself and just like kind of tapping into things in my own life. I'm a military kid. I've moved around so much in my life. And I, and I distinctly remember, and I think I talked to Adam and Eric about this, about remembering the time that I went to high school in Germany and then I came and I went to HBCU, Elizabeth City State University for college, right? And that that culture shock of like going to this place of like, you know, being, you know, really like very little of, of black people or people who look like me to a space where it is filled with a community that is like me, right? Mm -hmm. And really seeing myself and feeling seen and feeling like, yo, this is the community that I'm I'm a part of. And like, and also seeing that like in that community of being in an HBCU, I didn't see blackness as a monolith, right? Which was a whole like groundbreaking thing as, in itself as well. And so really like really utilizing that experience of like being in different communities and, and but it, having that moment where you, you get to see a portion of a community that you've been longing for. Like there's a piece of you that you've always been wanting and missing and didn't know what it was until you got to experience it. Uh, so that I think those are things, you know, just really tapping into the experiences that I've had in my life. And I credit Eric um, and also Casey for like really allowing, you know, us as artists to really like play around with the experiences and the things that are already in us. So. Yeah. And our parents, uh, Sarah and the O'Brien, Sarah, and why am I missing the name here? Kenneth, Kenneth and Sarah O'Brien, played by uh, Elizabeth Brewster and Andrew Kempfer. You guys are parents that remind me of some of mine, and um, just trying to be very supportive of your sons, but just in that space of, of, of tapping into parenting, what experiences did you guys bring to your roles as the O'Briens? Sarah being, you know, somewhat very, I guess, supportive of Malcolm, but then just kind of frustrated with, with her with her actual son. And then I felt like Kenneth was always the mediator, just trying to make sure things just let's let's all just get along. And I, I'd love for this to happen. Um, what did you all bring as far as your as far as your experiences as either parents or just loving, you know, members of your family to the roles of Sarah O'Brien and Kenneth O'Brien? I'll let Kenneth, Kenneth O'Brien go first. Oh, how kind of you. <laughs> oh, that's so kind of you. No, um, Don't no. make me whip out my Scottish accent. I know. Yeah. <laughs> That was I was going to bring that up earlier. That was really <laughs> funny. That was so. That was such a funny. fun moment to, to film. Um, 
I, I had mentioned earlier, you know, I've I've had the extreme good luck and fortune of working with uh, Casey and Eric for over a decade now on various projects. Uh, I was part of uh, Rob as well um, of some earlier readings, some other things, you know. So we we come together as a group, and the writing does a lot for it. You know, you don't have to work that hard when it's good writing. It's it's like whenever I go into an audition, I know good writing is stuff you can memorize very quickly. And it like, you don't have to labor over it. It's just good material. Uh, and Brother Mine is just good material. Um, so yeah, you can, I, I don't have uh, biological kids of my own, I'm not planning on it. Um, <laughs> but being a step-parent, um, it, it was funny. I, re I remember the moment it happened. This was years ago when I went to a play at uh, Lincoln Center, and like the dad role hits you different because you are a parent and you have a kid, and like yeah. empathy is such a, an interesting thing. And mm -hmm. you know, like everyone deserves it, nobody deserves it, and it's like all of these different dualities of family and what you're working out, and and yeah, it's. I do mediate a lot of the the material and the relationships and the back and forth of everything. It's and it's wild to see where it ends up. Um, you know, having having worked on it and seeing the different kind of variants of it, it's been it's been a wild wide ride to work on. But you're in for a treat to see where it it finally climaxes to. And Beth. Um, I just want to echo uh, that it always begins with good writing and it's much easier to, to work with that. Things just naturally flow from that. Mm -hmm. So uh, Eric and Casey have done laid the foundation in the groundwork so with such great expertise that you just as an actor you just get to go in and, and like add your brush strokes and kind of color in. Um, I'm the new kid on the block as far as uh, working on this project and everybody's been really gracious and kind and, and welcoming and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I am a parent. I have now two, uh, I keep trying, my husband and I keep desperately trying to be empty nesters. <laughs> um, our, so I do have two adult children and I can just say as a parent, I think what resonated with me with Sarah, she was really easy for me to connect with. And we have, uh, as a parent, I've been through some really challenging situations with both of my children that really exposed my insecurities as a parent. And then you've got to decide, it, it can be a really scary place because you want so much for your parent, uh, not for your parents, you want so much as a parent for your kids to do well. Yeah. And you want them to get the most out of life. And whether you, and sometimes you just can't help but have these expectations for your kids. And what's the natural path for your kid to take to be successful? And that doesn't always happen. In fact, that doesn't happen frequently to a lot of people. So part of that process is letting go of your expectations of what you thought the relationship should be, was going to be. And it's almost, I feel like for Sarah, she's caught, this is, this is new territory. She's caught in this, 
but wait, this isn't how I plan things to, to happen. And so she's really having to, this, it's this internal wrestling with, and yet she's trying so hard to hold on to all her coping skills, all the things that have served her well, trying to keep it together, mm-hmm. trying, to, trying to connect with both sons. And yet I think she feels a frustration in both, of, both relationships. Like you do whenever you go, you kind of cross over to a new phase with your children or really right. any relationship, right? You hit some bumps in it and some some things get exposed and then you've got to decide how you're going to deal with that. And in that process is a whole lot of uncomfortability and a whole lot of, okay, what am I going to do with this? If I just keep denying that this is what's happening, then I'm not going to move forward. The relationship isn't going to move forward. So. Um, it, it uh, I just without having to stretch much I just felt a connection with Sarah um, especially because again COVID and what that meant and how everybody yeah. was being affected by that yeah. there was mm-hmm. just a lot of stuff to tap into really easily mm. um, yeah so uh, and you know for the parents out there it's just you know warriors man whether you've adopted a child whether you um whether you have uh, stepchildren you've stepped into somebody else's parenting whether you've birthed them however you came to be a parent mm-hmm. come on <laughs> your parents are warriors man and i just have a whole lot of respect for parents it's you know it's because so much self-discovery is involved in being a parent right so much evaluation of your own self your own principles your own perspectives your own ideas it just gets constantly shook up if i can if that's such a word yeah just got shook up so there was a lot of phone call apologies to my parents once i became a parent of going like (laughs) uh, i'm really sorry yes really really sorry I remember, uh, I love that you said that because I remember one time a comment I had made, I had made such a critical judgment comment about strangers at a restaurant. I was with friends and I saw this interaction with these, this family. And I remember turning to my husband saying, when we have children, my child will never do that. Well, guess what? (laughs) I had to eat those words. Because God was listening. God was listening and he said, oh yeah, Beth, well, guess what? Not only is your child going to do that, but then let's, let's, you know, kick it up a notch. So um, I remember constantly going back and thinking about that and going, oh, scraping some more egg off my face, eating that humble pie. So, Wow. It's Brother a lot to mine. take on. Sorry. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's a real challenge. And that's why we like working with the people we're working with, because the challenge is thrown down to all of us. And each one of these people who you've been listening to and talking to, you can hear how much is in their hearts and minds that go into it, right? It's not just a practice of saying some lines and creating a scene and all of us have to look pretty or any of those things. We really have to dedicate ourselves to telling an earnest story. And Mm -hmm. the the demands of that uh, challenge us as much as it it puts out a challenge to 
to an audience. Um, that that really is a great confluence where the audience and our work meet, and we learn from them. They maybe learn from us if we're lucky. <laughs> you know, it, it's it, there's something great about this kind of artwork uh, when the audience and the art actually engage. So if anyone wanted to actually listen and see Brother Mine, where would they go, Eric? That's awesome. I can tell you that. So you can always check us out at uh, handforgedfiction.com, www.handforgedfiction.com. We are at Forged Fiction on um, Facebook, and we are on Vimeo.com. If you look up Hand Forged Fiction or Brother Mine, there is on demand. There's a lot of free content. Uh, there's a real opportunity to see a lot of the work we're doing and some new exciting things that are going to start rolling out from Hand Forged Fiction and all these brilliant artists. Oh, absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Drew Drake, Elizabeth Brewster, Rob Hilly, Andrew Kempfer, Casey Keene, Eric Dinte, our, our writer-director, and Adam Sims. Thank you so very much for joining me. I'm Valerie Johnson, and this is Interludes. No matter, no matter There's more to the story of Brother Mine. Watch more of my interview with the creative team behind the story and learn more about the future of hand forged fiction on the Interludes YouTube channel. And now. Becoming by Michelle Obama holds a special place in my heart. Like many Chicagoans, I was proud when Michelle Robinson, a product of Chicago Public School, a sister from the south side of Chicago, entered the White House as Mrs. Obama, the flotus to his POTUS. Mrs. Obama was both the essence of excellence and the personification of representation. She represented my humble south side beginnings. She was me. And together, the Obamas were a dream no longer deferred for older African-Americans like my mom. Released on November 13th, 2018, this would be an early Christmas gift for my mother. Her bookmark stalled around chapter five in the first third of the book subtitled Becoming Me. She didn't get a chance to finish. We'll finish for her. During one of my many house purges, I found a letter from the organization called Public Allies. I was one of the young leaders recognized by Public Allies, a non-for-profit community service organization, and attended a large banquet with many other young community leaders. The letter was signed by Michelle Obama, and from my faint memory, each table stood up and was acknowledged by Mrs. Obama for our work in and around the Chicagoland area. Reading through Becoming, I discovered how much Michelle and I had in common, at least the family structure and where we grew up. I figured it would be great if the first book in the Value Reads Book Club was a nonfiction book by our former first lady and our first floatist. Becoming mothered a worldwide tour, 
a Netflix documentary, and virtual discussions with Girl Scout members and leaders. Obama describes how she became many of the roles the world has long admired. Of course, some roles give way to others. Who wants to be pigeonholed or restricted to being only one thing, even if that typecast locks you behind the walls of the White House? She is we, and we are more than a monarchy that we, the people, rose up to defeat like diabetes, hunger, and malnutrition from fruits and vegetables of her garden planted, watered, and harvested to our health. White House occupants come and go, but what makes us special isn't found on the outside, it's the spirit within. And that humble spirit doesn't start out perfect, it's always on its way to becoming. Becoming Me runs from pages three to 107. Share your thoughts on this section of Becoming within our Facebook group page. Next time on Interludes. I always remembered the the fact that when I was in high school, there was a epidemic, a suicide epidemic on one of the reservations. And because of this hopelessness, I wanted to bring back hope to my people. That was my goal. That's uh, it was always my goal. And Drops of Hope literally started as a blog. Urban apologist and YouTuber of Drops of Hope Ministries, Mr. Phil Fox. Next time on Interludes. Interludes. Original concept by Valerie Johnson. Written by Michael Womble. Produced by Valerie Johnson and Michael Womble. Original intro and outro music produced by Kendall Nesbitt. Interludes, a pure lighthouse production. Brought to you by our national sponsor, Montevilla, the natural weight loss coffee and tea brewed with MTC oil and Ramon seeds. For more information and to purchase Montevilla coffee and tea, please visit linktr.ee forward slash purelightmedia. Our local title sponsor, A1 Pest Masters, for all your exterminating and pest control needs, call A1 Pest Masters at area code 773-365-9962 or visit their website at a1pestmasters.com. When you book your appointment with A1 Pest Masters, tell them that you heard it first on the podcast called Interludes. Catch our Interludes Extra Clips and more on our brand new YouTube channel called Interludes. Interludes.